I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. In the 11 chapters of the main argument of Romans, Paul takes us deeper into our understanding of the gospel, first by establishing that a person is justified before the court of God by faith. Justification by faith. This is chapters 1 through 4. In these chapters, Paul takes the role of prosecuting attorney. The first phase of his prosecution goes after all human beings who reject God as Lord. He does this in chapter 1, 18 to 32. That was in our last lesson where he charges human society with turning from God, suppressing truth about God, and engaging in a whole range of immoral activities. People are selfish, disrespectful, dishonest, greedy, and sexually immoral. Paul's audience got it. Atheists and pagans, old and new, make up their own morality. The passions of their heart are degrading, and the moral judgment of their minds is depraved. They have an amazing tolerance for their own sin as they justify their selfish, prideful, greedy behavior. That's human society. And if you have felt that moral judgment on the wickedness of your fellow man, on the depravity of society, if you feel things are bad and getting worse, then Paul's next words are for you. Romans 2, 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The prosecutor Paul has turned his sights on the real target. The real target is not pagan man. The real target is moral man the person who is self-satisfied with their own moral standing. So making a moral argument against humanity in general is no real challenge. But what about the moral man, the man who claims to be good? Paul includes this moral person in his indictment, charging that those who trust in their own moral standing really fail to keep the moral law. And that's that's the charge we just read. It's leveled in Romans 2, 1 through 5. And then in 6 through 16, Paul is going to go on to clarify or explain how God judges the person who comes into his court and makes a defense based on their own morality. Let's address the charge first and then move on to the clarification. Here's the charge. Essentially, you do what they do. So in verse 1, Paul proclaims that you who judge others do the same thing. For Paul's charge to work, he doesn't need to show that the moral person, you know, whether it's you or whether it's me, breaks the exact same moral laws as the pagan in the same way with the same intensity. You may not visit a prostitute, but instead enjoy sexually explicit movies and television. You may not murder, but instead make degrading remarks about your neighbors. You may not steal, but instead you're not precisely honest with your tax returns. Maybe not to the same degree, but it's still the same moral law. And even as I suggest these examples, you might think that's not the same thing. Or you might think, I don't do that. And I grant that. I grant that I might miss the mark 
for you. So how about we do this? Imagine that you have a digital recorder hanging around your neck and this recorder captures everything you say. Now imagine that we go through your life and we keep only the moral judgments that you made about other people. Every time you judge someone for the way they drive, the way they dress, the way they parent, the way they act, what they say, we record your judgment on the behavior of other people. And imagine that standing before the court of God, the recorder is played. God says, here is the standard by which you will be judged. And surprisingly, you hear your own voice pronouncing moral judgments about the behavior of other people. The standard by which you judge others is the standard by which you are judged. How do you think you'll do? If if you don't understand immediately that you're going to condemn yourself with your own words, then you lack self-awareness. Your own words condemn you. You do not live up to your own judgment of other people, and that would be enough. If you come before the court of God and you say, I am moral, judge me according to my own morality, and God actually plays the standard of your own morality, you will fall short. But the standard in God's court is not your standard. It's God's standard. So if you can't even keep your own moral standard, your expectations on other people, do you think there's any possibility that you live up to God's moral standard? Paul writes, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. The problem's not that our moral standard for others is wrong. Sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes we judge unjustly, but often we're right. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So our problem is, is not with our judgment of others. Our problem is that we forget the old adage that when you point your finger at someone else, you have three fingers pointing back at you. If you don't get that, try it out. <laughs> point your finger and look where three of your fingers are pointing. So we, we don't think of ourselves when we point at others. We make moral judgments and somehow we disconnect our own thoughts, our own words, our own behaviors from our judgments of other people. Paul tells us we better remember ourselves. Verse 3, do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? The moral person so often feels safe within their own conception of goodness, and especially when life's going well. It's possible to grow up in a good family, whether religious or non-religious, to grow up being taught the difference between right and wrong, to be held to a standard of honesty, of goodness, of civic duty. It's possible that your personality responds to that kind of upbringing and that you, you benefit from your own morality. You, you haven't cheated. You've been honest. You've worked hard. You've got a job. You married. You had children. You have friends. You get respect at work. You mow the yard on the weekend. You do the shopping. You make sure the kids get to their activities. Life works. Life's good. So why is life good? Is your life a sign of God's approval for your moral behavior? A sense of moral pride would be quite natural at this point. I've done well. I'm getting what I deserve for my hard work and honest life. I am basically a good person. Paul says, think again. Verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. There is a natural benefit that comes from living a moral life. 
good moral decisions often bring about positive practical consequences. Sociologists have theorized something called the success sequence, which seems to be a major factor in preventing poverty. If you do the right things in the right order, if you finish high school, work full-time, get married before having children, that is a major factor in avoiding poverty. Wise moral choices often produce positive results over time. Whether you are a Christian, whether you are a Jew, whether you're a moral atheist, if you follow the moral law of God, then generally you will experience blessing in your life. Not a guarantee, but a general rule. So a lot of people experience the blessing of following a moral pattern based on Christian Judeo values. Is the blessing, uh, the benefit that you receive in life, is that a sign that God is pleased with your moral behavior? That's not the lesson Paul says we should learn. He says that God's kindness should not lead us to pride or arrogance, It should not make us think that we've attained moral approval. Rather, God's kindness should lead us to repentance. As we we recognize God's mercy, I recognize I don't live up. I'm trying, but I don't make it. I I don't live up to my own moral standard, much less God's moral standard, but I am grateful for the blessings I've received in life. If I take the moral high ground and I say, I deserve this life because I've been good, then verse five applies. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You're only focused on your good days, your best days, when you were decently moral. And somehow you're blocking out all those thoughts, all those words, all those actions that are storing up for you the wrath of God on that day. So God, he may be pleased with your attempt at living morally. He is not pleased with your selfishness, your pride, your lust, your hurtful words. He may kindly bless you, not to say you have attained moral approval for your life. Instead, to extend mercy in what you are doing so that you can honestly confess how you still fall short. So that you might turn to him with confession and repentance and with gratitude. Two words in verse 5 connect us back to something we've already seen, So, going back to the last lesson. Here in verse 5, God's righteous judgment will be revealed, and it will be a day of wrath. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in that day. Well, back in in chapter 1, verse 18, we were told the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And it's it's helpful to ask or to think about there's a wrath there in one eighteen, and there's a wrath here in 2.5. How do these wraths, what's the difference between the two? The wrath in chapter 1 was against pagan man who rejects the idea of moral accountability to God. The wrath here is against moral man. Also, the wrath there was being revealed in present history. The wrath here is to come in a future day of judgment. The wrath there is passive, a giving over of man to himself, such that the consequence of his own depravity is his punishment. The wrath here is active. And it's going to come on a day of judgment according to the righteous judgment of God. Paul has charged the moral man with sin, and he tells him to expect wrath. Following God's moral law to some degree may protect a person from certain practical consequences of sin in this present life. But don't get the wrong message from that. Um, A failing attempt at morality 
does not free a person from the accountability of the judgment that is to come. And Paul's going to go on in the next 11 verses to explain the idea of a moral defense before God. If I'm going to choose to stand before God saying, judge me according to my own basic goodness, then I I better know how God will evaluate my case. If you still think I am good enough, even after verses 1 through 5, then pay close attention to what will be required of you. You get to choose whether you want to make a moral defense when you stand before God on the day of judgment. When you come into his court, you can choose your defense, and you, you can say, God, judge me on what I've said, what I've thought, what I've done, and see that I am righteous. And if you're going to take that offense, you better be clear on what is required to be successful in standing on your own morality before the court of God. So let's look at Paul's clarification in the next 11 verses. The first thing you need to know is that God will render judgment with a complete impartiality according to the deeds a person has committed during his or her lifetime. These two truths, that it is according to your behavior and that it is impartial, occur in verses 6 and 11, and they they form an inclusio to this section of verses 6 through 11, and traditionally this section has caused quite a bit of confusion or challenge for interpretation. In fact, the passage is highly structured, and when we recognize that structure, Paul's point is going to come more into focus. It's, it's a simple and clear point. The structure, Paul, here is called a chiastic structure or a chiasm. It is a parallel structure where the first element parallels the last element, the second element parallels the second to last element, the third element parallels the third to last element, and so on. And I, I want to explain this to you because it's important for this passage, but we're going to see this structure again and again in Romans. It, it gets repeated. So it's, it's worth going into some detail here. To give you an American example, we can go to President Kennedy. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So the word country links the beginning and end of the phrase, and then the word you links the middle. So what we have is country, you, you, country. That's chiasm, country on the two ends, you in the middle. For a European example, we can go to the, the name of the Swedish group ABBA, the first letter of each member's name, Agnetha, Bjorn, Benny, and Annie Fried make up the ABBA pattern, A-B-B-A, and the ends are parallel, and the middle is, we've got the A's on the end and the B's in the middle. When you see photos of the group, they don't stand male, female, male, female. They, they usually stood with two guys on the outside and the two girls on the inside, and I guess that really would be Bab, since it, Bjorn and Benny are on the outside, but Bab's not nearly as nice a name as Abba for a group. Uh, in, in any case, it's it's chiastic. Hebrews use chiasm through the Old Testament, and so if we, if we had time, we could we could look at the flood narrative, which is which is wonderfully chiastic with the raising and falling of the water. A lot more numbers in there than just forty. So if you go that, you'll see the numbers arranged chiastically. The Book of Deuteronomy is arranged chiastically. A number of the Psalms are arranged chiastically. Psalm one forty five two reads, "Every day I will bless you." and I will praise your name forever and ever. So on the, the first and last, we have every day forever and ever. And you see how that's parallel, every day forever and ever. And then in the middle, we have I will bless you, I will praise your name. Every day, I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. This is a very pleasant, very pleasing pattern. And so as I said, we're going to see it again in Romans. Let's return to 6 through 11. We need to look closely And I do need to warn you that your English translation may have changed Paul's Greek word order. And if that's true, the chiastic structure gets kind of 
put out of order. So you're not going to be able to see it necessarily in your English translation. I'm using the NASB, which works hard to keep the Greek structure so I can see it in this English translation. And if you want to see how this pattern works, you can go to observetheword.com and download the resource notes for this lesson. Now, one way you notice a chiasm in scripture is to pay attention when words or phrases or ideas stand out by being repetitive. So in verses 7 and 8, we have the phrase, to those who. That gets repeated. And then in verses 9 and 10, we have the phrase, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. That gets repeated. Noticing repetition does not guarantee chiasm, but it does challenge you as an observer of Scripture. It challenges you to look close at what the author is doing. When I see repetition, I want to see, is there something going on here? And what we see here is that we have two groups of people both mentioned twice. So we have those who persevere in doing good, they're morally good people, and those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, they're morally bad people. Then we have every soul of man who does evil, obviously bad people, and everyone who does good, good people. So our pattern in the text is good people, bad people, bad people, good people. That's a basic chiasm. We've got the good people at the beginning and the end and the bad people in the middle. But then there's more. We also get the reward or punishment for each group, whether they're good or bad. So the reward in verse 7 is eternal life, and in verse 10, glory, honor, peace. Then the punishment in verse 8 is wrath and indignation, and in verse 9, tribulation and distress. So our pattern now is good, reward, bad, punishment. Punishment, bad, reward, Good. And then finally, to the front of the pattern, we add the introduction verse in verse 6, who will render to each person according to his deeds. And to the end, we add the concluding verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. So then here we have the pattern. So listen to this. Who will render to each person according to his deeds. Good reward. Bad punishment. Punishment. Bad. Reward. Good for there is no partiality with God. These, these verses can be summed up like this. The one who stands before God based on his own morality will be judged by his own deeds. If his deeds are good, he receives reward. If his deeds are bad, he receives punishment. And the judgment will be made without prejudice. This is a basic, uh, clear explanation of what will be required of the moral defense. If you stand before God, based on your own morality, then your deeds will be evaluated. Good is rewarded, bad is punished, and there is absolutely no partiality shown in the evaluation of the deeds. Now, this doesn't sound like grace, and that creates a a problem. It sounds like works. In fact, it very clearly sounds like a a works-based judgment. And so some scholars have wanted to address that problem by interpreting the good person in verses 5 through 10 as a new covenant believer. And so they suggest that Paul is here describing what Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 30, that God would do something new inside the new covenant believer so that the new covenant believer could indeed live out the moral law of loving God and loving his neighbor. So By living in the power of the Holy Spirit, those new covenant believers are the ones who persevere in doing good and so receive the reward of eternal life. So these scholars would say that Paul supports this view by later in this same chapter emphasizing that a Jew is one who has been circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. The regeneration of the Spirit enables the good person to live a morally worthy life. I, I affirm that the work of the Holy Spirit enables New Covenant believers to truly live for God. And Paul's going to affirm that in chapters 5 through 8. But verse 7 is describing the means 
by which a person obtains eternal life. By perseverance in doing good, an individual is found righteous and so granted eternal life. That's what the verse says. Is that the new covenant idea of how a person gains righteous standing before God? Does God enable us to do moral righteousness so that we can be justified before his court according to our own moral behavior? It's a good question, and I don't want to spoil Paul's presentation, but I'll go ahead and say the short answer is, by no means. That is not what Paul is saying here. It is not by our own moral behavior that we are going to be found righteous in God's eyes. I'm, I'm jumping ahead to his conclusion, the verdict, in chapter 3, so let's, let's not run ahead of Paul. Concerning this text, I do not believe Paul has in mind the Christian here. I believe that Paul is stating the requirement for moral judgment. He's not stated yet whether anyone meets that requirement. He is simply making clear the standard. The standard is not being better than the next guy. The moral person who stands in judgment over those who are more immoral should think very carefully before choosing to make a moral defense before God. A feeling of moral superiority over a secular person, an atheist, a modern pagan, doesn't help one whit in establishing credible defense in God's court of justice. God is impartial. You will be judged on your own works alone, not in any comparison with anyone else. God does not grade on a curve. Moral judgment declares that if you have persevered your whole life in doing good, then you can expect eternal life. If you have done good, you will receive glory, honor, and peace. But if not, you should expect wrath, indignation, tribulation, and distress. This is true of Jew or Greek, Christian or atheist, Muslim or Hindu. Each of us must ask the question, have I met God's moral standard through my good behavior throughout my life? In answering that question, we remember two main points of the passage. First, there's no partiality with God. And that's verse 11. It doesn't matter what kind of family you've grown up in, how often you've gone to church, whether or not you're a missionary, how much money you have or do not have. There's no partiality of any kind. So the moral defense before God only takes into account your own moral behavior. Second, it's perseverance in doing good that's taken into account. Your whole life brings the evidence for you or against you. You do not get to make an album of your best possible moments and put that on display. This is, this is not Facebook or Instagram. God's got the whole film. He has your inner thoughts on record. He will make a fair and impartial judgment of you based on the sum total of your life's works and thoughts. Do you want to take the moral defense? Judge me, God, on what I've said, thought, and done. Judge me by my goodness according to your standard of what is morally good. Paul continues by reminding us that it is not our knowledge of the law that counts, but our doing of the law. See this in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. That Paul has general moral law in mind seems clear in this section by the comparison of the moral person to the pagan person. You judge those pagans who do not obey any objective standard of moral law, and yet you break the same law you hold them to. That was the accusation at the beginning when we moved from pagan man to moral man. Paul will make that that point again in our last two verses that we're dealing with general moral law. Moral judgment extends beyond keeping Old Testament law to a general requirement of all mankind. 
Still, Paul's reference here to law is not moral law in general, but to Torah, that high expression of moral law possessed by the Jews. Torah is the instruction included in the first five books of the Old Testament. It is the covenant made with Israel through Moses that provided the basis for the rule of later kings and the exhortation of the later prophets. The word Paul is using for law in Romans, it's the word namas. It's a a Greek word for law. Uh, Most often when he uses that in in Romans, he's referring to Torah. Not always, but most often. And Torah is that, that high expression of moral law that comes from God. So here... When Paul refused to those without the law, he's, he has in mind non-Jews, and when he thinks of those with the law, he has in mind Jews. And so he's thinking of the moral Jew judging the pagan non-Jew. That's our present context. We can bring that forward to our own day, and we can very easily think of of law as the, the moral command of the new covenant that, that we got through Jesus and the apostles, and we can imagine the target of Paul's indictment to be the cultural Christian who stands in moral judgment over the non-Christian. So the one with the law would be the, the Christian who has this, this idea of, of biblical morality judging the non-Christian who doesn't accept the Bible as a standard. Paul says, think not about yourself in relationship to your neighbor. Think about yourself based on whether you are doing the law or whether you are not doing the law. The one who sins while possessing the law is judged for his own sin. The one who sins while not possessing the law is judged for his own sin. It's not knowing the law, but doing the law that counts. So verse 13 is sometimes problematic for Christians who've been taught that we're justified by faith. If, if we are justified by faith, what do we do with Paul's proclamation here that not hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified? The idea that doers of the law will be justified supports Paul's moral explanation of the moral defense that we saw in verses 6 through 11. You know, there are two ways that a person can be declared just before a just judge. So either you, you come to court and the judge considers you not guilty. So then you're declared just or righteous before the court. You didn't do the crime, so you're innocent. You're justified. The other way to be declared justified is to be found guilty of a crime, but then to pay the punishment required. If you're, if you're found guilty of speeding and then there's a, and there's a fine to be paid, if you paid it, then having paid the penalty, you are now justified before the court. So on the grounds of the moral defense, a person is found innocent or justified not by having paid the penalty. They're found innocent or justified before the court if they persevere through life in doing righteous deeds. So the one who does what is right is justified according to the moral defense. They've not broken moral law, therefore they are not condemned. And Paul is here emphasizing that truth. We're just we're talking about moral defense. Doers of the law will be justified, declared to be in the right. Paul, Paul still hasn't yet explicitly answered the question of whether anyone actually perseveres in doing the law. And he doesn't really need to answer that question. He just needs to put it out there. We can, all, we can all answer the question ourselves. We know we have not. In our last three verses, Paul describes the moral nature of man. All people through all cultures, through all time, recognize some reality of right and wrong. Our understandings of morality have not always agreed. I, th- I think it was C.S. Lewis who made the point that even cannibals recognize how immoral it would be to eat a person in one's own tribe. So though twisted, there's still this moral impulse there, a definition of right versus wrong. All people recognize the existence of some right and some wrong, which is why guilt is also a universal human feeling. Unless a person is truly psychotic, 
then he recognizes some sense of right and wrong and feels guilty for having done wrong. And we we don't lift up the psychotic person, void of morals, as the aim of an evolving society. We recognize that the psychotic person, the person who has no sense of right and wrong, no feeling of guilt, we recognize that person not as a superior human being, but as an undesirable aberration. We are moral, and we think people ought to be moral in some sense of that word. That's just how we feel. And I say that this universal impulse is evidence of the fact that all people are created in the image of God. In the case against pagan man, Paul argued that the creation implies a creator. That was an argument from origins. Since stuff exists, somebody must have created. We could argue as well that this universal sense of morality implies a lawgiver. You know, where does it come from? Where does this sense of morality in all humans from all cultures come from? And not only that, why do we believe we ought not try to escape it, at least not completely? We want to redefine morality, but we don't want to do away with morality. We want there to be a right or wrong that people are accountable to. And that people do not agree on the details of morality, that follows Paul's earlier argument that by turning away from God, the moral image in us has become fractured. Or as he put it in in chapter 1, verse 21, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And that darkness may have twisted the moral impulse in us. It has not removed it. So Paul argues in verse 14 that people who do not have the special revelation of God's law still do instinctively things of the law. People still feel that it is right at times to help others without receiving anything back or to tell the truth or to be courageous or to speak gently to a child in tears to provide for those in need. So, of course, Paul's not saying that all people feel all those things at all times. Paul does not argue that people understand these things with clear moral vision, nor does he argue that people are consistently successful in doing these things. In fact, he indicates that people are not consistently successful in keeping the moral standard they believe in. So he writes in verse 15, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So on the one hand, the person without the law brings judgment on the person who has the law when the person without the law is the one who does what is required by the law. There are good moral non-Christians. Some non-Christians are simply nicer people than many Christians. Some non-Christians shame Christians by behaving more in line with the teaching of Christ than the Christians do. This is true, and it's evidence of an internal moral impulse. On the other hand, every non-Christian is also condemned, everyone without the law, by their own conscience for their failure to do good, the good they know they ought to do. And again, this does not mean that they feel guilty about all that they should feel guilty about. If their heart is darkened, Their conscience is not a sure guide to their own moral state, but enough of the image of God remains that each one recognizes a moral standard and each one recognizes deep inside that they have failed in keeping to their own standard. Guilt is a universal feeling. And Western people spend an enormous amount of money and energy trying to rid themselves of that guilt without admitting to their own sinfulness as the source. The entertainment industry thrives as it distracts us from the troubling truths of our internal turmoil. And the psychiatric industry thrives in the effort to convince us, contrary to our inner voice, that we're good and that everything's okay. No, it's not. We know it's not. So Paul's point in verse 16 is future-oriented. 
He looks towards that day of wrath he mentioned in verse 5, and he tells us that men and women will be judged by the standard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The standard of the gospel is the standard that states the immoral man must die on a tree. The gospel affirms that the wages of sin is death. Secrets will be made known. Our conscience will alternately defend us, alternately accuse us. Even without the moral standard of God, the digital recorder of our own standard will be played. And we know in advance that we will not live up. We cannot even plead that we misunderstood the standard. Enough of the moral impulse is left in each of us that were we honest, we would not dare take a moral defense in the court of God. If it is the doers of the law who will be justified, each of us has access to the fact that we will not be justified. For we have not even done the law we know in our hearts we ought to do, much less the law that God would require from us. The moral defense fails. There is no good news here. Not yet. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.